Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hey there, everyone. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Paul or Nothing. Remember, this is widescreen podcasting and the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for listening. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Now, remember when I told you that the next Listen With Sam episode was going to be out much quicker than the last one? Well, folks, I really wasn't fucking around. I meant business and... Here we are once more with some good old-fashioned music reviewmanship. I mean, I say it's a review, but in all likelihood, it's just going to be snarky, post-millennial pessimism masquerading as criticism. But, oh well, what are you going to do? Listen to another Beatles podcast? Not like any of them exist, right? Yes, everyone, we are back with another episode of one of my favourite digressional side series here on the show, Listen With Sam. If this is your first time here, maybe you're a huge Venus and Mars fan and you've just discovered the pod, or maybe you are an astronomy head who has gotten lost. Either way, on these episodes, we simply sit back and relax with a chronological Paul McCartney album that we have likely already covered on the show, and we just listen to it. Well, I say listen. I do mean that I'm also going to be talking over it the entire time, but If you think I'm just going to upload an entire Paul McCartney album without talking over it, then you clearly have no idea how copyright infringement works. Though I do remember when I first uploaded the Wings at the Speed of Sound episode, I got my very first comment on Podbean, and it was just someone saying, Sam, you haven't uploaded the episode, you've just uploaded the album. So, it's not as ridiculous as uh, I just made out there. Anyway, I have decided to do this episode, Venus and Mars, right away, because A... It took us far too long to get the Band on the Run episode out there, and I wish to apologise. And B, I thought it would break up the rock and roll covers chat, as two of those back-to-back could be a little bit heavy for some. Especially when I'm also recording another review with a guest about another rock and roll covers album in Macca's history this week. So, yeah, a lot of that going around. But anyway... Before we can listen to the highly anticipated follow-up to Wing's most popular, most universally recognised and praised album ever, we do indeed have to deal with the matter of the... Housekeeping! First of all, what have we got in terms of news in in regards to the podcast? I've recently just uh, made an appearance on the absolutely fantastic ranking the Beatles podcast, one of the new kids on the block that have sprung up during the... Covid blossoming of podcasts. That's been so wonderful to see. Thank you so much to Jonathan and Julia for having me on that show. It was an absolute blast. We discussed Maxwell's Silver Hammer, which, frankly, folks, was far too low on Jonathan's ranking. But, you know, I was there to defend Paul's granny music, to defend against the accusations that Paul made the band play the song over and over and over and tried to add a little bit of context, you know? And (laughs) when I say we discussed Maxwell Silverhammer, in all likelihood, it was probably just two hours of me yelling and being rude and interrupting people. But if that's your bag, 
If you'd like to hear me speak with the lovely Jonathan and Julia, check out our episode on March 9th. That'll be out then. Now, this is being announced quite late in the game. I do apologise, but I'll be taking part in a live charity quiz on the 26th of February 2021, which is at the time of recording, just two days away. And this charity quiz will be hosted by the Blotto Beatles podcast. Yes, another one of these fantastic newer podcasts that I've been just getting absolutely lost in. I've already made an appearance on the show where we discussed Martha, my dear, and they've very kindly had me back as one of the podcasting quiz masters they are having for this quiz. There's also going to be Dr. Ken Womack. There's going to be BC the Beatles, as well as Ethan from Fans on the Run. It's an absolutely star-studied event. The charity and the cause that this uh, quiz is in aid of will be for ALS. I'm sure many of you will remember the Ice Bucket Challenge from a few years ago. And... By Jove, the Blotto Beatles have already raised over $1,500. So, after my fee, that's going to be over $200 for charity, folks, which is amazing, right? Just let you know, my questions are going to be some doozies, so make sure you brush up on your homework. The quiz is going to be live. It's going to be taking place, like I say, on February 26th, 2021, two days from now. It'll be held 8pm Central American time, I believe. And since it is live, that means that by the time I come on the show, I will be hosting around 2am here in the UK. So I'd likely be having a nap before my appearance. I'm sorry if I sound groggy on the show. But yeah, folks, be there or be four sides of a square. In terms of Maca news specifically, this very morning, just before I started recording, there was an announcement made for yet another McCartney release this year, namely a book entitled Paul McCartney, The Lyrics, which, oh, you know what? I'm probably going to need a few more Patreon supporters if I'm going to be getting this one, folks. Oh, you know what? I would absolutely love to review this one. Maybe I'll write into NPL and ask them if this tiny little podcast can get some free stuff. Who knows? Who knows? But anyway, the press release statement for this book reads as thus. Paul McCartney is publishing a career-spanning book about his songs. The lyrics, 1956 to the present, spanning a combined two volumes, arrives on November 2nd, 2021, via publishers Live Right in the US and Alan Lane in the UK. McCartney explains the book's premise. More often than I can count, I've always been asked if I would write an autobiography, but the time has never been right. The one thing I've always managed to do, whether at home or on the road, is to write new songs. I know that some people, when they get a certain age, like to write a diary to recall day-to-day events from the past, but I have no such notebooks. What I do have are my songs, hundreds of them, which I've learned serve much the same purpose. And the songs span my entire life. Uh, yep. Absolutely looking forward to this one. I mean, of course, 98% of lyrics for every song ever can just be found online for free. But if this is going to be like a lyric book that also somehow works as an autobiography, maybe he'll have little notes and memories by each one. I'm not sure. But either way, this is definitely going to be a must-have purchase for any McCartney fan. And if he releases another album or some more songs, then I guess you'll have to get the second edition as well. Outside of that, though, I scoured the web, I'd asked around. The only thing I really could find about Paul over the last few days was 
a photo of him and Nancy showing off their new dog in the tabloids. So, yeah, that's news, I suppose. Um, we did have the terrible announcement that the electronic dance uh, group, the EDM duo Daft Punk, have disbanded. And the only reason I'm bringing that up on this Paul McCartney podcast is because I was watching their second live TV performance at the Grammys, where they collabed with Stevie Wonder and Pharrell Williams, and who should be in the front row rocking out and having the time of his life? You guessed it. It was our boy Macca, (laughs) and he was loving it. Check out the clip if you haven't already. Anyway, on to the emails. Of course, if you want to get in contact with the show, please email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I want to hear your McCartney stories, your McCartney trivia, your McCartney anecdotes, and, of course, I want to hear your thoughts on the music, whether it's albums we've reviewed in the past, whether it's an album I'm going to be reviewing soon. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on either Off the Ground or the Unplugged album, or even Chopper. You know, Chopper's coming coming up soon, folks, so get those in while you can. Our first email today, though, is from a returning emailer, and his name, despite being explained in the first sentence of this email, is actually still up for debate, because in my personal circle, everyone pronounces the name David Bowie, David Bowie, differently. Anyway, this one is from... My man B, we'll just say for now, he says, Hello Sam, it's me again. First of all, I just have to quickly explain something, because the last time you asked me to specify my name and the way it's pronounced. It's pronounced like David Bowie, David Bowie. Again, that doesn't help me at all. Is it like a cow? Or is it like toe? You know? That's what I need to know, my friend. Anyway, I've just started your swap cast with Glass Onion. There's going to be three soon. And I'm loving it so far. Both of my favourite podcasters together. I've been trying to dig more into your back catalogue recently, and I'm having lots of fun with it. Anyway, I know you didn't exactly ask for this, but I felt like sharing my favourite Paul albums with you. I want to preface this with, I don't think these are the best, just my favourite. At number five, he's got Kisses on the Bottom, which... Fucking hell, that's a bold top five move. I I totally commend you for that, but in my experience, you are going to have to be prepared for a lot of flack coming your way. At number four, we've got Tug of War. Understandable. At number three, McCartney One. Very interesting indeed, again. At number two, Flaming Pie. Folks, I am so amazed at how the younger generation seems to be embracing a lot of these supposedly quote-unquote bad or forgotten or lesser McCartney albums, you know? I'm really enjoying Press to Play. I know my friend Owen Ling really loves that album as well. And then Mr. B at number one has McCartney 3 as his top album. Absolutely incredible. It's a bold move. I'm not sure how long it's going to stay. At number one for him, we'll have to see. Anyway, he continues, I can't wait for you to get to Flaming Pie. Anyway, thank you for doing this podcast. Also, I will hopefully become a patron soon when I start getting more money coming through. Anyway, seize the day, Harry Harry Krishna, Bowie or Bowie. Thank you so much for that again, dude. Always love reading your emails. You keep in contact quite regularly, which I always appreciate. And folks, You know, if you just need something to pad out an email, I I always want to hear what your top three, top five, top ten Paul McCartney albums are. It's a fantastic way for me to 
get to know you in a short amount of time as possible by making grand, bold assumptions that probably aren't true about your character. Anyway, our next email is from a first-timer. This one's a little longer, so I'm just going to jump right in. This one's from Brian of That Is Called Brian. He says, Hi, Sam. I've been listening to your podcast for a few weeks now. Sorry. I've been a Macca fan since I was 17 in 1991. I first bought the Beatles' Red and Blue albums and then Wings' Greatest and all of the Macca albums when they were reissued in around 1993 on tape. Your podcast has been great for revisiting some of the back catalogue that I hadn't listened to in ages. It's very good, and you're obviously putting in a lot of prep into each episode. Some nuggets of information I hadn't even heard before, and though I don't agree with everything you say, that's okay. Mostly because the podcast is helping me get through the current lockdown. And then he goes on to list just things he wants to tell me, which, you know what, they might not be connected, and they might be a bit of uh, stream of consciousness, shall we say, but man, this is a, a fantastic list of statements. He, can, he continues, some observations. In my opinion, his three best albums are at number three, Ram, at number two, Band on the Run, and at number one, Tug of War. A very non-controversial list there, but Ram should be at the top. Though he goes on to say, Ram gets better every time I listen to it. I agree that Pipes of Peace is better than the critics say, but it's not the classic that its predecessor is. Side 2 of Pipes of Peace is a bit patchy apart from the last track. So much of the critical analysis of McCartney's music is lazy and overly critical, bordering on bitter. Some of the critics need to sort their issues out. I know I listen through favourable ears, but I'm right. You can't expect him to write 5,000 Eleanor Rigby's, he's not a machine. I like Ebony and Ivory. Sorry, me bad. Then he says, I think you underappreciated certain songs such as Tug of War, Take It Away, With A Little Luck, and Find My Way. Um, did I? Did I underappreciate With A Little Luck? Because now that's easily one of my favourite Paul McCartney songs. It's one of the very first ones I listened to. I'm definitely going to have to go back and check that one out. I do apologise if I did underappreciate that one. You can't underappreciate With A Little Luck. The others, less so. He continues, McCartney 3 was a great surprise. It's fantastic, great variety. Seize the day, sliding, when winter comes, amongst others, are super. And I think the reason he worked best with George Martin is that he respected him so much and he kind of reverted to being that 20-year-old kid doing what he's told in the studio again. No messing and just doing the business. A bit of a school teacher type effect. For me, Paul still produces very solid albums, but the big difference from the 1970s and 80s is the absence of awesome singles. It's controversial, but the last super single was arguably Once Upon a Long Ago, if not No More Lonely Nights. Fine Line was so close to being one for me, but it just wasn't. I can't believe that Paul has so much quality unreleased material. Waterspout is awesome, Cage, This Time Next Year, the list goes on. It would be great if he released a proper 12-song album of the best unreleased material at some stage. Maybe that could be a future podcast subject for you. Oh, Brian, I've certainly thought of that one. But it's a bit awkward, really, because Paul is releasing mo the, you know, the majority of them with the archive collection, you know? I've seen Paul live in Dublin three times. 2003, 2008, and 2009. And each time, it was amazing. He has... He's a great 
funny and charismatic frontman. So many awesome songs to pick from and not enough time to sing half of them. Songs I wish he would play live include Silly Love Songs, With A Little Luck, No More Lonely Nights and Daytime Nighttime Suffering, amongst others before it's too late. Probably unlikely though now. A deep dive short tour, maybe? As much as I worship the guy, I think his voice used to be a Ferrari, whilst now it's a bit more of a BMW M3. Good, but not like the 12-cylinder supercharged weapon it used to be. It still worked well on McCartney 3, though. He concludes, I look forward to getting through the rest of Paul or Nothing's episodes, Sam. Keep up the great work. Thanks again, and regards. Brian from Dublin, Ireland. Wow, that is a, a lot to take in there. I don't even know where I'd start, really. Thank you so much for bearing your soul there. Like, I think that's every opinion you would probably have on Paul McCartney, concisely written in one long email there. Um, there is nothing wrong with loving ebony and ivory, even if you're like me and you, and you only love it ironically, you know? Um, though I would have to argue the fact that there haven't been any good singles since Once Upon a Long Ago or No More Lonely Nights. Flowers in the Dirt had three fantastic singles. Come on, let's, let's not be obtuse here. And, you know, without sounding like a contrarian again, I'm liking most of the singles from off the ground as well. Come on, people withstanding, you know? And I'm sure your metaphor where you compare McCartney's past voice and his present voice to two different cars is probably really accurate, but I ride a push bike, so I've actually got no way of telling whether that's valid or not, but I'll take your word on it. Thank you so much for that one, Brian. That was a really fun email to read out. And as you know, I always like a nice long one as well because it pans out my poor content nicely. Finally, though, we have a third email today from Richard B., another first-time emailer, and he says, Hey, Sam, new listener to the show, was drawn in by the fantastic pun title. Yes, Richard, you... Oh, thank you for saying that. So few people mention that. I mean, 98% of the reason I did this show in the first place was because I thought of that title, you know? All or nothing, Paul or nothing. Come on, come on, folks, it's genius, yeah? He continues, Just wanted to say that I've really been enjoying your pods on late 80s McCartney. It's an area I was very uninterested in, and generally I would only listen up to Tug of War and pick up with Flaming Pie again. Finding the amazing deep cuts such as Squid and Love Come Tumbling Down were instant additions to my playlist. Also, loved your episode with Andrew Dixon, a brilliant pairing. I hope you cover the fantastic album that is McCartney Unplugged. It's an absolute powerhouse record. Keep up the brilliant work. Cheers, dude. Thank, thank you for that one. And I, I totally agree with you. Me and Andrew are a wonderful pairing. I can't wait to get him back on the show or do something on his channel to to repay him. I really enjoyed doing a podcast with that guy. And it's so funny you should mention the idea of tug of war up to flaming pie because that's how I was when I was going through like McCartney's 70s stuff. Like I always look forward slightly ahead. I, I, I know I shouldn't. I should stick to the format. But when I was just a Wings fan and not a, a, you know, a solo Paul fan per se, I would pretty much just skip past all of that stuff as well but in doing this podcast and being forced I guess through the format to listen to those albums whether I want to or not has been so liberating you know the fact that 
at least as far as my own perceptions are concerned, that, you know, I've disproved that McCartney's 80s period was this throwaway, forgotten decade that we should give no credence to. Just, just feels good, you know? It's been absolutely incredible listening to Flowers in the Dirt, Press to Play, and defending Pipes of Peace, you know? Am I worried about the 90s period? You can bet your ass I am. But, you know, at least we've got McCartney unplugged in that period as well. Definitely looking forward to that episode as well. Thank you for that, Rich. I'd love to hear back from you again soon, my friend. And yeah, folks, if you want to be like them, please email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Or if you want these housekeeping segments to be shorter, don't. Anyway, for more frequent updates and daily doses of madness you can follow us on our twitter page which is at mccartney pod check out our blog our sister blog for all sorts of bonus paul or nothing paul mccartney pod content which is www.paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com follow us on the other socials facebook instagram and youtube simply by typing in paul mccartney podcast or paul or nothing i'm nearly caught up on all of the episodes on YouTube now. So if you're an, a new a new listener and YouTube's more, more your thing, you know, you're not much of a, a streamer or anything like that, you can check out the entire Paul or Nothing back catalogue for free on YouTube. If you want to help out the show in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, then please consider leaving us a review on whatever platform you were using. Give us the old thumbs up, as it were. If you remember the last episode, apparently me asking you to give me a nice comment and a five-star review is part of an arrogant con but i don't think i don't think that's true at all I'm, I'm asking you to support the show in the best way possible to get around the system i'm not fucking jeb bush fudging the numbers on the election in florida i'm just trying to get a few more people to listen to my podcast via an established algorithm you know sue me and finally folks if you'd like to help out the show in a more direct way if you're like my listener bowie slash bowie slash b and you would like to give back to the show in a way that keeps the lights running and allows me to get new equipment, new guests, new product to review, then please consider joining our Patreon family. Patreon, as I'm sure you know, is a platform that allows you, the public, to support independent content creators such as myself by chucking a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month. Still working on getting some rewards and benefits for the show. At the moment, it's a bit of a glorified GoFundMe, but like I say, it goes straight back into the show every single time. And the fact that I already have a Patreon family of, you know, dedicated supporters, it's it's an indescribable feeling. It really is, folks. You know, the fact that anyone would think this show's worth even a dollar is pretty inconceivable to me, but, you know, I'd be doing this show whether I got a bit of cash every month from it or not. But hey, nothing is better than the financial incentive, you know? But in all seriousness, thank you so much for anyone who already does donate to the, to the Patreon. People, wonderful people, such as Stephanie Miller, Louis DiLonardo, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S., Sam Hode, Anastasia P., Robert Carabelli, Tony Vosal, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Thank you to everyone who supports the show. Oh, now, folks, now we've gotten all of those plugs and updates out of the way, it's time to prep our vinyl or CD or cassette or eight track copies of Venus and Mars, Wing's fourth studio album. And it's time to pretend that we know nothing of Wing's career post-1975 to put ourselves 
in the mindset of Maka fans who are probably still processing how good Band on the Run actually was. Remember, Wings are cool now, everyone. They're popular. They're at the top of the charts. And now we have their new album. Day of release, let's pretend. Let's go check it out. And to start us off, we have the title track, the second Wings album to do so now. And yeah, folks, I'm already feeling the same tingle down my spine that this song gave me the first time I ever heard it. I know I've mentioned before how nervous I was when I was listening to this album to review for the first time. And I can still so clearly, so vividly remember the feeling of utter elation when those guitar notes and those flutes that we're listening to now first hit my ears. It really has been unmatched ever since, really. And everything about this is, is just so perfect. You know, oh, Paul's voice as well. Ah, oh, it doesn't get much better than this in terms of value for money. We've, we've spoken before about the brevity being the soul of wit, but not since Single Pigeon on Red Roads have we seen Paul be able to infuse so much memorable melody, entrancing lyricism, and wonderful instrumentation into such a short and sweet song. I also just love how it's not over the top or anything in its declarative statement, it's just that Venus and Mars are all right tonight, and that's so effective for me. Gosh, I love this song. And before we even have time to understand what is happening, coming in hot in second place, we have Rock Show, which is as much of a verbal contract promise with the audience as to what they're about to hear on this album, as much as it is an actual title, even if the album, as we're going to see later, is a lot more pop than anyone likes to admit. But yeah, this is the big, bad, bold introduction to what is, quote-unquote, the stadium rock sound that Paul was aiming for you know, with the possibility of an imminent world tour looming over his head. Like, this is totally him thinking ahead and wondering what's going to blow the audience's heads off. And not only has the opening song referred to sports arenas, but now, boom, it's a rock show. Only took him five albums, but finally we're here. Now, I'm not sure how self-aware Paul is being here with this and the opening track together in terms of audience expectations. Like, I'm going to compare several songs on this album to Band on the Run, as you can guess, but I'm not sure if I've explored how, essentially, Rock Show is a less complex but far more badass evolution of the Band on the Run medley multi-song type song. Instead of doing the three-part medley, though, he instead teases you with that. Like, we have the short little intro song, and then we go right into a five and a half minute epic. It does have a little coda at the end, which could be interpreted as a third segment, but that could be a little bit reaching. But yeah, rather than skipping the over-the-top heavy rocker suite in favour of skipping straight to a big radio-friendly chorus, instead, he's combined the two. He's kept the badass middle segment from the Band on the Run song and stretched it out with all the McCartney indulgence you could ever want but also now he has Jimmy McCulloch and Joe English backing him up this time so of course he's more happy to rock out Paul himself though really does come out swinging on this one no, oh, oh, listen to it we've got one of the liveliest bass lines that he's ever done up until this point in fact it's one of the most underrated ones ever if you ask me 
Oh, but his voice is, again, it just sends shivers down my spine. Like, it's almost as if he wanted the album to kick off with the, the guttural screams that ended with 1985 on the last album. Like, everything about this song is just so cool and is subconsciously letting the audience know that wings are allowed to be relevant and hip and that the fun isn't going anywhere. This is such an exciting time in Wings history, isn't it? Do you hear those oys as well? Uh, the, classic, the classic 70s rock oys. It's, it's a bit of, you know, Paul clearly doing what the kids are doing these days. I mean, they probably weren't around at this time, but it, for me it's very ACDC, but I imagine it's much more like a, a Black Sabbath rip-off than anything else. You know, for all the crap that I give Jet, though, for being subpar rock, I really should point out, uh, you know, similar criticisms at Rock Show, if I'm being fair. It is more or less Jet 2 in many regards, but like another song on this album, instead of suffering from the sequel's law of diminishing returns, Rock Show is akin to a, a reboot that reinvigorates the franchise. Again, it makes me sound like I'm calling Band of the Run a crappy album, which I'm not at all. What I'm saying is that Paul managed to pull off many of the same tricks that he pulled off in Band on the Run here far more successfully than I think he's ever been credited with. I mean, that bass line, again, it, it's clearly an evolved form of the heavy single-note drone that we heard on Jet. And, you know, we've got a chorus, you know, like, with these sh short, sharp syllables. Um, but, you know, instead of Jet, it's Rock Show! Going back to the Jet comparison, though, and I really couldn't bring this up till later in this review as it highlights one of my points, but fuck me, is this song too long? Like, don't get me wrong, I love this track, but there is no need whatsoever for it to be going on as long as it is currently. You know, it's longer than everything on Ban on the Run, bar Picasso's last words. It's not like we're dealing with deep, deep feeling or anything. I mean, the fact that they cut half this song out when McCartney joins it with Jet over Wings Over America during Wings Over America is quite endemic to my feelings about this song. Of course, we're on the coda now as well, which might be one of my favourite Paul McCartney codas ever. Like it's clearly just another song or piano riff that was knocking around in his head, and he's just chucked it on the end of this song to shake things up. And thank God he did, because a, a general fade out, uh, you know, to, to the general chunk of this song would have been too jarring and disappointing. And instead we get this syncopated, funky little shuffle of a closer. Oh, and that, 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 that piano lick is just so tense and slick and smooth. Again, this whole thing is very McCartney-esque. It's totally his shtick in the studio. He's letting us know he's still poor and that these flourishes are gonna be all over this album. And finally, with a little eruption of drumming, we then do fade out into our third track which of course is Lovin' Song. And after being hit with that very Band on the Run-esque one-two punch of Venus and Mars rock show, Paul has decided to make up for the fact that there were no silly love songs on the last album by instead giving us one of the most serious, earnest, open to bear, vulnerable love songs he's ever written, which would have been surprising for people who may have read the track listing ahead of time and rolled their eyes, because Going off the title alone, you would assume that this is a sickly sweet saccharine sequel to I Am Your Singer. 
For me, one of the most attractive things about this song is that it's another one of those times, like with, say, My Brave Face, where Paul writes a breakup song, despite the fact that he couldn't be any happier in his love for Linda. It's Paul stepping outside of his wheelhouse and examining the topic of love, a well which he revisits plenty enough, and whilst he's giving us another bloody love song, here you're kind of, just listen, you're dumbfounded by how mature and tragic the whole thing is. I mean, how can you not tear up over lines like, I can see the places that we used to go to now, and you just heard it there. Is there a more Paul McCartney line in existence than happiness in the homeland? Like, this song is a little obscure for my liking, despite being a B-side to quite a successful single, and yet this is 100% classic canon must-listen macket as far as I'm concerned. Of course, he uses the standard verse-verse-chorus technique here to build up that familiar tension, but fucking hell, once it does shift into that chorus and those Moog keyboards come in, it's one of the most effective emotional parts of the album. Like, I know Paul and Melodrama go hand-in-hand, but the emotional heights that he gets to in this song are incredible. It's so jarring the way Paul catches you off guard with just how emotive he can be so soon after this unwieldy stadium rocker. Like, there's no jet or any other fun, wacky follow-up single here. He hits us early on with those deep, deep feelings. I also love how this is a Paul McCartney love song, but he's also backed by a band and a five-piece proper orchestra so he can arrange it with a full complement of moving pieces like the main riff is almost this indistinguishable mixture of acoustic guitar piano and keyboards we also get fantastic harmonies on this album something which is we also get fantastic harmonies on this song something that is sorely lacking on the rest of it uh, you know the classic trio of Paul Linda and Denny again though this is likely due to the fact that they, they, they don't have to rely on that now since we have more members and the writing is quote-unquote much bigger and grand. And before I can finish any of that, we are now onto pewter pole position with the song that everyone knows I'm going to gush all over, which is You Gave Me The Answer. I've made no effort to hide my genuine affection for Paul's quote-unquote granny music, and this one is as granny as they come. But this is your great-grandmother, and she's one bad bitch. Whilst Loving Song was a break in the format that was established on Ban on the Run, aka no love songs, thankfully Paul follows it up with You Gave Me the Answer and basically goes one step further by making the silliest of all silly love songs. I mean, I just spent two hours on the excellent Ranking the Beatles podcast talking about the same thing, but being someone who enjoys a work of art because it's what the artist wants to do over what the audience wants, aka the exact opposite of pu the public perception of Paul, is the primary reason why I have such an unabashed affection for this tune. Like, this is Paul being himself, and playing the music he likes, that influenced him, and he's going to play it whether you like it or not. But he's going to totally commit to it as well, and blow your expectations out of the water. Of course, it can't be ignored that, that this was around the time that Wings also recorded Walking Through the Park with Eloise and Bridge Over the River Suite, under the guise of the County Hams, so Deep State Macca fans really shouldn't have been surprised that this kind of music was going to be on this album, but what I do find so admirably ballsy is how this isn't on side two with all the other weirder stuff. No, Paul has promised us a rock show, and after the song Rock Show, we haven't had two rock songs. 
So I just find that as a hilarious, wickedly wry wink to the audience that, again, Paul is still Paul, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, something that was sorely missing from the last album, bar the last track, was Paul sat at the piano, and now we do have a little... And while he did have a little bit of piano in the last song, but, you know, four songs in now, we get another good old-fashioned Macca song that shows off just how good he is at these kind of songs, a la Martha My Dear or the aforementioned 1985. And with that gloriously bouncy and funky bassline, we are introduced to the song that might be used in the future to bring Paul McCartney into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which can only be... Magneto and Titanium Man. Of course, Magneto is the leader of the Brotherhood of Mutants and the main antagonist of the X-Men in Marvel's X-Men comics. Of course, he was portrayed by Ian McKellen and Michael Fassbender in the movies, making him a very well-known character in pop culture. And then we have Titanium Man. To this day, everyone, I've never seen Titanium Man outside of this particular song and the image on the banner that Paul would hang during the live performances of this song during Wings Over America. I mean, I'm not an X-Men fanatic, but I know the basics. I've read a few comics and the movies and the cartoons and ran around fighting imaginary robots whilst pretending to be Wolverine. But only through this Paul McCartney album track have I ever heard of Titanium Man. Oh, those drums as well. I love... What is that sound? It's so weird. It's another one of those never-to-be-referred-to-again production flourishes that... Makes this album so gloriously fun and silly. But yeah, if if Marvel, now owned by Disney, do not create a scene in the next X-Men movie, maybe a corny bank robbery scene, you know, where Magneto and Titanium Man are together and they and they don't play this song, then they're just they're just burning money, folks, aren't they? They are throwing it away. I'd love to see this song in a, in, a, in a movie, but, you know. Of course, this is also the track with one of the most oft-misunderstood lyrics in Paul McCartney's canon. I, along with many of you, I'm sure, thought Paul was first saying, we're going to the town with the library, but now I'm a little bit older and a little bit slower. I now know, he says, we went to town in our library, a.k.a. their uniforms. But yeah, onto the song itself. Come on, everyone, you know I love this one. And even outside of all the nerdy comic book stuff, this has always been my jam. Of course, as well, as well, this side series has also been a chance for me to recall any particular memories that spring to mind whenever I hear a particular song. And for me, the memory I will always associate with Magneto and Titanium Man will be my best friend Tom. You'll know him from our McCartney 2 episodes and more recently, the 117th episode Spectacular. But yeah, when I was first getting into Solo Macca, I remember us getting really fucked up on the sofa and watching Rock Show, the, the movie, and this was a song that he vibed with instantly. And who could blame him? You know, you would have thought that after something as unapologetically upbeat as you gave me the answer, that McCartney would do his, his you know, sad one, happy one, sad one, happy one formula to up the seriousness of the album. But no, he's still giving it the old college try and infusing that Red Rose Speedway sense of fun onto this album. You know, maybe McCartney didn't have the wrong idea with trying to set up Red Rose Speedway in that way. Maybe he just had the wrong band. And now we come to the end of side one with Letting Go, a song that 
must be one of every McCartney fan's favourite slightly obscure songs. You know, it's not fully obscure, but it's right in the middle ground between everyone and no one having heard it. But everyone who has heard it will fucking love it. I also saw Paul do this one live at the O2 Arena back in 2018. And I can distinctly remember having to pick up my jaw physically off the floor after it had been dropped. Like, for all the furore and attention Paul gives to rockers like Helter Skelter in his back catalogue, he really should throw a compliment or two this song's way every once in a while. Of course, my shorthand for this song is that it's Let Me Roll It Part 2, which isn't helped by the fact that the first three letters of the song are the same. But yeah, as much as it is a rip-off of Let Me Roll It, like Rock Show, it's also a general improvement. Probably because, again, it's Paul taking all the stuff that I loved from that last type of song and extrapolating it even further and removing all the bits that I didn't like. Rather than being focused on that spotlight wanky McCartney's doing solo lead guitar riff kind of thing, instead we get more of a dirty, grungy chugalug that's counterpointed with those incredibly bright and poppy brass movements that combined makes for a brilliantly commercial yet legitimately cool Wings product. It also has to be noted that already just how many of these songs from this side of the album alone are going to be appearing on Wings Over America. Like, I know I'm talking about that album a lot as well, looking forward, but it's all inherently interlinked, so it can't be helped. It's all preconceived and specifically designed to be as badass live as possible. I mean, those horns, come on! How can you not feel a certain rush or thrill when these come on? I know I mentioned earlier how there aren't as many classic Wings harmonies on this album, but the vocals on this song are pretty, pretty excellent, actually. And it's, it's fantastic how you get to really pick out Linda and Denny and Jimmy and their individual performances here. It's not my favourite Wings vocal ever, but it's all part of a fun direction that the band were going in at this moment, and a fantastic starting point for the Wings at the Speed of Sound blend of the old harmonies and the new, you know, all kind of culminating in something like Beware My Love. I mean, there's also another part of me that does wonder why Letting Go was never more of a chart success story. So maybe we should have a look at what competition there were in the charts at that point. So in the top 50 in the UK, the week after Letting Go's release, when it was at its peak in the charts, in terms of songs I know at least, we have at number one, I Only Have Eyes For You by Art Garfunkel, at number four, Space Odyssey, Space Oddity by David Bowie, number six, SOS by ABBA, number 22, No Woman No Cry by Bob Marley, number 39, Cracking Up by Tommy Hunt, and at number 40, You by George Harrison. I mean, I'm totally happy for SOS and Space Oddity to beat out this track, but Art Garfunkel, everyone. I'm a showman, country there, everyone. And for its peak in the charts in the US, we're going to look at Letting Go three weeks after its release. At number one, we have Bad Blood by Neil Sedica. Number nine, Ballroom Blitz by The Sweet. At number 10, It Only Takes a Minute by Tavares. At number 19, Low Rider by War. Number 26, Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. And at number 29, Fame by David Bowie. I don't see why this couldn't have been a top 10 hit in the States, folks. There is no excuse as why this wasn't in the top five in the States, folks. That's not the biggest competition ever, especially when, you know, fame and Bordron are so clearly slipping down the charts as well. 
Also, when McCartney sings this 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 brilliant close alive, he much more openly sings the and I feel like letting go. And I wish that had been incorporated here a little bit, but you can't have everything, can you? And now, folks, it is time for us to process what we've just heard. In the time it takes me to flip over this vinyl disc of Venus and Mars, try and put yourself in the shoes of everyone back in 1975. Would you be satisfied so far with this follow-up to Band on the Run? Does, does it sound too similar? Does it not sound similar enough? Is McCartney taking too many risks with, you know, doing what he wants to do for a change, you know? Though, if you are one of the people at that time who would have thought, oh, I wish there was more Denny Lane and Jimmy McCullough on this album, well, you won't have to wait too long, will you? As we now do turn over to side two, and we open with one of the main Paul McCartney tropes, the reprise. This time we have the Venus and Mars reprise, and immediately I'm already back in that place of utter calm serenity. Ready for side two as I was for side one. It's a fun little trick to break things up and divide the McCartney half of the album and the Wings band half of the album. And, you know, like with the last album, the popular one, of course he's referencing that reprise as well, but without doing the same thing over, this time the reprise is at the start of side two rather than at the end, which not only puts you on edge, and again lets you know that we are doing things differently this time around, but, but it's also a little way of McCartney letting us know that he is aware of what he's doing, you know. He doesn't do all of these tropes in ignorance. And you know what? This is one of those albums that proudly carries the importance of discussing side one and side two into the 20th century while we're here. Going back to my friend Tom, he doesn't give a shit about side one and side two, but how can you possibly discuss the importance of track listing without taking this into account, you know? Listen to the lyrics right now, this is clearly more of McCartney adding that space-aged psychedelia that was starting in something like Lou the First Indian on the Moon, but you just can't help but make Ziggy Stardust, David Bowie-esque comparisons all over the shop, can you? I also love the sounds of the radio transmission coming through, at least that's how I interpret it. It reminds me of something like either the broadcast or reception from Back to the Egg, as well as the sounds of the Martian signals from Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, which is one of my all-time favorite albums, so there's no harm in referencing that at all. Though, we... Finally, folks, we now move on to a solo Denny Lane composition with Spirits of Ancient Egypt. Only took Paul four albums to give his primary co-writer his own little moment in the spotlight. And very rapidly you can tell that this is a Denny Lane composition. And I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. Like that distinct, unmistakable centre of rhythm and blues is in the air. And we're gifted with this really dark, moody, swampy and mysterious intro. I remember being quite harsh on McCartney's decision to stick his bandmates on side B of this album. But still... The contrast that we get on side two of the album does keep things fresh and exciting and maintains its wickedly fast pace. Lyrically, this song seems to be Denny Lane's own attempt at those kind of non-sequitur stream of consciousness writings where it almost sounds like the trippy cousin to a more conventional 
arranged rocker like Junior's farm. Though, just like Paul, Denny knows how to bring it all back around to something a little more universal with lines about you know, being a baby and loving one's baby, which anchors the songs nicely. Though, I must point out how much I just love the out there, listen, this wacky boldness of just having random ass spirit of ancient Egypt hook in the middle of the track. It's a fantastically vague Rorschach test whereby you can just project whatever meaning you want onto it and it still makes sense. Speaking of Denny Lane and songs, I did just want to go into a bit of detail with the whole Denny Lane story because I actually found an incredible quote online and here's the abridged version about Denny Lane, his song rights and the whole Mull of Kintyre fracas. Things changed in 1977 when Linda McCartney became pregnant for the fourth time with son James. During the birth of daughter Stella, Linda nearly died giving birth, and so to avoid a repeat, Paul put Wings into a partial hiatus by stopping touring, but recording the album Water Wings, which was later London Town. When Wings returned to Britain to complete the album, Denny Lane would now be paying income tax at the level of his earnings from the previous year. Denny simply couldn't afford to pay the taxman what he owed, with this dragging on for several years. In January 1980, Wings flew to Japan for a lucrative series of concerts, which would be enough for Denny to clear off his tax bill. Unfortunately for Denny, Paul got busted for bringing in marijuana and faced seven years in jail. With Denny's tax bill still unpaid, he had no choice but to ask Paul to lend him the money, and he did. This was no interest-free loan, however, and Denny was instead dealing with Paul's lawyers who demanded collateral to secure the loan. Denny's only option was to put up his songs as, sure, as a surety, knowing that not paying the money back would cost him everything. When Denny could not get an extension on the loan, he lost most of his songs, including his most lucrative moneymaker, Mull of Kintyre. Then we come on to the first solo Jimmy McCullough penned Wings composition, right after Denny Lane's first one. Man, that still makes me feel uncomfortable. But yeah, as with any McCartney track, I have to make sure it's not obviously a Paul song if I intend to play it publicly with friends. And so, since this is a Jimmy lead vocal and sounds like no other Wings song in the catalogue, I have in fact played this one to various friends of mine over the years just to see what they think of this slightly more generic 70s rock track. And sadly, it's been universally either derided or simply stirred no emotional response from these people whatsoever. This has led me to believe that this song is only as badass as we, as Macathans think it is, is entirely down to the wider context of McCartney and Wings' songbook. Basically, I'm starting to wonder if this song only seems as colossal purely for the fact that, at its core, McCartney isn't a rocker and Jimmy was. Now, am I saying that this is better than the best Paul Rockers? Of course not. But Jimmy was the only just getting really started and his presence immediately added much more of a rock vibe than anyone else ever did. Like, of course, I'm not going to put this above even, you know, arch rivals such as Let Me Roll It or Jet, but it's still certainly up there with things like The Mess, Big Barn Bed, Spin It On, Mumbo. You know, I don't think it's unfair to say that Paul isn't a rocker, because he isn't. He's far too multi-talented to just put out Letting Go over and over and over again. That all being said, I still can't bring myself to call this anything other than an awesome song all over. Firstly, the riff is just so badass, and rather than something like Let Me Roll It Again, 
it doesn't do all of that showman stuff. He just launches into it and never lets up for the entire track. And I know I can't play anything on the guitar other than the A7 chord myself, so I've got no expertise to base this on, but I'm sorry, it's just cool. And that solo we just heard, it's one of the best in the Wings canon. That being said though, whilst everyone goes straight to Jimmy's guitarmanship on this song, because it is hard to ignore, I want to give a little shout out to his vocals here. Like, it's so refreshingly different from what we've heard before. I mean, now, now, now I'm thinking, if things kept going the way they were, maybe if Jim was a little bit more stable, then maybe he would have joined, you know, the Wings core trio, and it would have been a Wings quadrilogy. You never know. Unfortunately, though, that probably wouldn't happen. Like, Jimmy might be a great solo vocalist, but his voice never truly blended with Paul, Linda's, and Denny's in that truly serendipitous way. Also, in terms of sequencing, I do now find myself giving so much more favour to this Denny Lane, Jimmy McCullough double bill here, as it gives us a wonderful break from Paul that either shakes up the formula if you're getting bored, or, like Loving Strange, makes you miss Paul for a triumphant return. It's also a shame that Paul never gave this one a blast live either. I mean, Paul never really gives any of his old Wings bandmates a shout out like that, but Imagine if Paul played this, or No Words, or Time to Hide. Everyone would lose their collective minds. Moving on to Call Me Back Again now, which is one of those Paul McCartney songs that is so knowingly over the top and gloriously basks in its own heightened sense of ridiculousness. Until I heard it in preparation for this episode, I never really paid much attention to the full arrangement going on in the background of this one. Like, it's far too easy to get hooked on the vocals, Jimmy and Denny's guitar work, or English's fancy-ass drumming, or even the, you know, the big brass notes ringing out, but just behind all of that in the mix. And I can't tell quite what it is, but you have this great either like synth work or the strange different horns with post-production work on them. But it has this great rolling lollop to its delivery that allows the stop, start, stop, start, jangly instrumentation of the rock band flow far more fluidly than it ever would have if it was just the five piece. Lyrically, this is also another one of the most generic Paul McCartney songs ever, but not in a throwaway sense, just that Paul knows what kind of vocal he wants for this kind of song and what words and rhymes are gonna allow him to get there. Or at least that, that's how I've interpreted it. Like, we have him singing the line every night, which is instantly nostalgic. But can we just give some credence as to how many songs Paul has sung about phones and being on the phone? Like, we've got I'll Give You a Ring from this period. There's Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey. Then you've got the Beatles songs. All I've got to do, she came in through the bathroom window, you know my name, look up the number, I call your name, and even no reply. So clearly, McCartney's got a thing for writing about Alexander Graham Bell's famous communication invention. Of course, this is because phone rhymes with a lot of things, as well as call, but also because the phone was the internet of its day, and the novelty of writing songs about phones was, you know, also a throwback to the classic era of rock and roll which is the exact kind of thing Paul would want to write if you're going to perform with Lennon, which is perfect. Yeah, I, 
I didn't actually mention Lennon before, did I? And not even in the original episode. Um, I actually had to go back and check if I had, and it, I hadn't. Maybe Ken Womack did, I don't know. But yeah, it turns out that this song was going to be the song that Paul was originally going to duet with Lennon during these sessions in 74. I know, right? How could I let that one slip? Well, it turns out that when Paul was in New Orleans, he was planning on collabing with John, and it was going to be this track. I don't know whether it was going to be a harmony or a back and forth piece, but fucking hell, all my neurons are firing in all directions with the potential possibilities here. I will say though, not knowing that Lennon, knowing that Lennon, knowing that fact doesn't detract at all from my ability to enjoy this song. You know, rather like Spectre being the producer on the Let It Be album. If I'd have never found out, I'd have no reason to suspect otherwise. I'll tell you what though, folks, just as a little aside, going back and reading those old podcast notes I did for earlier episodes when I'm doing these Listen With Sam's is an incredibly cringe-worthy experience like no other. Like, fuck me, did I ever write the most deranged scrawl? Like a, like a maniac lunatic. It was also back when I still tried to include quotes about the song during the interview portion of the review. Like, yeah, it was my first one, I didn't know any better, but clearly I, I hadn't considered how dull it would be for my guests to sit there whilst I read off quotes. <laughs> you know, conversely, this has meant that my album reviews for individual songs have never been as thorough as I'd like, but I'm also trying to make content that is entertaining at the same time, you know. So there is a balance somewhere. And now, folks, we are truly coming to the end of this wonderful album now with the number one US single that, for some ungodly reason, never found its way onto the track listing for Wings' Greatest. Of course, this is Listen to What the Man Said during a Listen with Sam episode. Maybe I'm the man. It got to the top spot in both US and Canada, number six here in the UK as well. So yeah, it was a pretty big deal back in the day. But it's so weird to think that Venus and Mars had as many singles as Band on the Run and Red Rose Speedway. Anyway, onto the song. As many of you will know, I love me a front-loaded Paul McCartney album where all the singles are as early as possible. But what actually impressed me about Venus and Mars, and this isn't a slight against this song, but you genuinely forget that Side 2 has listened to what the man said on it. Like, this is the hit single from the album, and, you know, nothing on this album is nearly as radio-friendly but from the moment the needle hits the record, you're just assaulted with all this high-quality songmanship. You know, maybe not up to the heights of Band on the Run for some, but it's just as consistent within its own context. Which is especially impressive, considering how much more of a varied album this is sonically. And then you, you read your song and you're like, Oh yeah, this is fucking awesome! I love this one! We also can't ignore that this is one of the most underrated riffs in the entire Paul McCartney songbook. It's just gorgeous, isn't it? It's catchy without being annoying. And the way it's played is so soft on the ear that it doesn't even seem like a riff at all, just part of the general milieu of the song. This, combined with McCartney's do-do-do-do's, makes for one of the most subtly catchy songs on the album, even if it isn't in your face catchy. You know, the song is one of the fastest earworms that McCartney's ever put out. 
and it's no surprise to me at all that it was a successful single. It's the definition of hit all over. God, that production is just so slick. So, what is this song even about again? Who is the man? And why should we be listening to him in the first place? Well, when McCartney spoke in Club Sandwich, he said, My stuff is, my stuff is never a comment from within. Basically, I'm saying, listen to the basic rules. Don't goof off too much. But if you say the man, it can mean God. It can mean woman. Listen to your man. It can mean so many things. Later, I did a song with Michael Jackson called The Man. And again, it's quite nice leaving things ambiguous. I'm sure for Michael, the man probably meant God. Again, not to shamelessly plug my recent appearance on the Ranking the Beatles podcast again or anything, but the two hosts there are indeed from New Orleans. And how could I not give them a shout out here? This, of course, is the album that was partially recorded in New Orleans. Though, if, unless you were told, like the Lennon thing, you would never have guessed. This song is arguably the most faithful and accurate depiction of the, you know, Treme sound from New Orleans. And it's nothing like the actual music that comes out of there. I mean, the fact that one of the New Orleans pioneers, Alan Toussaint, makes an appearance on this song still offers it no extra credibility whatsoever. Now, does this mean the song's a failure? Absolutely not. Possibly for any other artist, yes, but since Macca's own sound is so strong in its own way anyway, it barely matters at all. Oh, lovely bit of... Is that, is that a bit of clarinet there? Oh, that's so nice. Of course, in this song as well, we, we had the lip-smacking, kissy-kissy-kiss sound from more of that goofy cornball, hammy production that I'm just utterly smitten with. And now we come up to the penultimate song, and we have a two-part song that actually admits to being a two-part song, unlike the Cowardly Venus and Mars rock show parading round like they aren't joined at the hip. Yes, folks, this is Treated Gently, Lonely Old People, and right off the bat, I've got to say, this this is the mumbo of, me, of Venus and Mars for me, in the sense that this is a song that I probably liked least the first time around I heard the album, and now I can't imagine life without. This is obviously the Treat Her Gently segment, and whilst I would say that this is the weaker of the two siblings, it doesn't derail the song or anything, not even close. But yeah, if I had to pick which one of them is my favourite, it's got to be this. It's the Lonely Old People segment of the song. This for me has so much heart and soul. It's, it's the centre point of the album emotionally. Like, we've had so much frivolity on this album, you know, bar love in song, and now for the last track, we are hit with this tidal wave of empathy and emotion. Like for me, I have a particular innate sadness already when I think of the elderly. And through oh so few words, Paul is able to conjure up all of those anxieties and really make you feel sorry for these old people. I mean, especially now during these hard COVID-19 times, the idea of lonely old people seems more relevant now than ever. Whether it's my own grandparents stuck in their bungalow for the best part of a year, or the hundreds of thousands of elderly stuck in care homes across the world, the sentiments of this song are all around us. I know this isn't a hot or unique take on this material or anything, but it's so brilliant that Paul has basically done a more mature sequel to Elna Rigby. Thankfully, Paul does at least put a little bit of ray of sunshine in this song, is that 
in that there are at least two lonely old people together. You know, he doesn't say whether they're friends or whether they're married or whatever, but at least they have each other. However, if you are like me and you always assume the worst, then you cannot help but think about how one of the old people will likely be dead soon and that their time together is finite. Fuck me, this is such a tragic song, isn't it? Bam, we're back into the treat her gently, refrain, you know, structurally. This kind of reminds me of Cage in many ways. Also, just a, li a little aside, I remember I had an ex of mine, the one who I embarrassingly announced that I'd broken up with on that cringeworthy episode, you know, where I was explaining why I hadn't uploaded for three months. And I remember she thought the she doesn't even know her own mind part of the song was a patronising men think all women are stupid kind of comment. And I never took it that way. And since it leads into lonely old people, I've always understood it as a, the, the child or partner explaining the caregiving needs of their of their wife. Like, treat her gently, treat her kind. She doesn't even know her own mind. Could almost be a word-for-word -word real set of instructions on how to deal with someone with dementia. And again, that's something I've gone through with my family as well. And this song captures those emotions so, so vividly. We can get this closer now coming in and we get some Jimmy on guitar doing some noodling, more noodling than Henry McCullough was ever allowed to do. And oh, the emotions just so thick and tangible. It just surrounds you here. I feel like Woman Beautiful tried to capture something similar with this track and just failed to do so. Again, this is just such a universal theme, you know, we're all gonna grow old. Hopefully we're all gonna grow old anyway. And if you can't vibe with this one, again, stony-hearted, those yeah yeahs from Paul, it's, it's so heart-wrenching, he really goes for the jugular on this one, and I love it. That being said, folks, of course, we finally come on to Crossroads, one of the most jarringly poor musical missteps on a Macca album ever, on top of being arguably one of the worst McCartney instrumental tracks ever recorded. And folks, I really do mean that. I know I tend to over-exaggerate my hatred for certain songs, but this track can generally go fuck itself all the way back to the drawing book. You know, you have this pretty much perfect run of songs from start to finish, it's all Pete wings, it's fun, it's lighthearted, it's funny. And then he ruins it all by taking the joke one step too far. He doesn't know when to quit when he's ahead. And we're left with this mad little malady that does nothing but drag the album down before the final hurdle. Again, I know people want, to, want me to compare this to Band on the Run. And it's this song alone that prevents it from being anything other than one step behind Band on the Run, one rung below it. I'm sorry, folks, but... This is rubbish. And there we are, ladies and gentlemen. We have come to the end of our Listen With Sam episode of Venus and Mars. Again, let's cast our minds back to 1975. We have now listened to all of Wing's fourth studio album, The Big Question on Everyone's Mind, will, of course, now be, was this as good as Band on the Run? Is it worse than Band on the Run? And... Whilst I hate being on the fence about this kind of thing, you know, 
bar my comments about Crossroads, it really is too close to tell. If you took Crossroads out and replaced it with Lunchbox Odd Socks, I don't know whether I could come down too harshly on either side. You know, if Band on the Run is 100%, then because of Crossroads, Venus and Mars is sadly 99%. But it's still pretty damn close, isn't it? But of course now, folks, I want to know what you think of Venus and Mars. Did you hear this album for the first time back in 1975 when it came out? Did you discover it much later for whatever reason? Have any of the songs, in your opinion, appreciated or depreciated over time? Would you have swapped any of these tracks out with the other songs we know McCartney was recording at this time? I want to hear all of it, folks. Please drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com and let me know your thoughts on Venus and Mars. Again, folks, thank you for listening to another episode of Listen With Sam. Thank God we finally got another one of these episodes out. It was really nagging at the back of my mind, but now we can take it easy and there isn't exactly a rush to get wings at the speed of sound out there, which of course will be our next chronological entry. And after this episode, folks, we will be releasing our next swap cast with Anthony Rotuno from the Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast, where he will be taking over the hosting duties this time around. And I'll be the guest on my own podcast again somehow, where we are going to be discussing an album that I think we've all been looking forward to me covering, which is, of course, Snover VCCR, Chobber BCCP, or, as you might know it, the Russian album cannot wait for that one folks but yeah until that time hit us up on the socials follow us on Twitter on YouTube check out the blog please leave us a review consider the Patreon all of that malarkey but most importantly keep listening to Paul stay safe peace of love peace of love Hari Hari Krishna play us out there Thank mm-hmm. you.